Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to the podcast one more time, Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. It's a delight for me to talk about executive function and its impact on learning, thinking, becoming independent, self-managed child who goes on and takes on the world. And I'm here with my dear colleague and friend, Todd. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is going to be a fun one. Fantastic conversation because we have a fantastic guest. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I grew up in India and going to school, my parents had this warning, do not ever make us come to school. (laughs) It sounds awful, but what they meant is only time you get called to school is when you're in trouble. And the instructions were, do not get in trouble. And part of that being that kind of student is basically don't ask questions. If you have problems, just zip it, you know, don't create ruckus, do not be part of a ruckus. And we turned out to be pretty decent kids because we were extremely afraid of my dad. <laughs> and we, we were decent kids. But I know there was one particular pattern that I noted in India. We didn't have anything called support system and support staff or anybody with expertise. But we had something that I noted, and of course, looking back, is eighth grade dropout. So kids who did not survive were those who were having difficulties. They came from difficult backgrounds. They had some challenges that they just didn't know how to fight their way through. And the only solution for them turned out to be just leave school. And this is why I'm so excited to talk about this expert today, because she's going to give us a sense of hope and how we have changed our thinking and particularly maybe in US how we we are doing things. So it's a great pleasure and joy to invite this wonderful guest today, Dr. Cheryl Rice. She is a behavior intervention specialist for public school elementary student grades pre-K through fifth grade. She is also an adjunct professor at Valdosta State University in special education department. She is a certified instructor of mindful nonviolent crisis intervention. I can't wait to talk to her about that. And finally, early intervention specialist for Georgia Department of Education through Georgia Pines, which is Parent and Infant Network of Early Intervention Services. And she's a longtime resident of Georgia. Today on Zoom, those who get to see this, her two grown-up boys, and one of them has helped her. So welcome, Cheryl, to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So this podcast is about executive function, and we talk a lot about that self-management skills, insight, metacognitive awareness. And I love to ask my guests, particularly educators like you who have gotten in the field, now that you stand at the brink of that, where you get to help people, when did you yourself become aware of your own needs as a learner and a thinker? And what kind of people helped you become the independent and amazing educator that you are? I think I'm still working on executive functioning skills. I think that I think it's a lifelong process as we age and go through different phases of life. But my best recollection is probably when I was in school, I had excellent teachers who listened. They, I think that's the reason I became a teacher because I had excellent teachers. And I had an interesting childhood where you know, I was born in the South, raised in the South. I spoke when you're spoken to and um, spanking was 
definitely something everybody did. And you really could make a case for yourself because you did something you weren't supposed to do. You're in trouble. So I think whenever I became a parent, that's probably when I really began to learn about it because I wanted to be able to teach my own children executive functioning skills. And I became a teacher and a parent at about the same time and actually became a better teacher after I became a parent because I really wanted to raise my children to be able to decide for themselves and make the right choices rather than just act appropriately because there was an adult in the room. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's been a process. And when I became a special education teacher, it became even more clear to me because my students with special needs, we really needed to systematically teach them how to make the right choices. A lot of our kids with typical cognitive development they learn from watching others or they learn from their parents or they learn from their peers. But students with special needs sometimes do have to be explicitly taught these skills. I think that's when it really became clear because I really had to figure out how to break it down. How do you actually teach executive functioning to students who may not have the communication or the yes. self-control? And so I think that's when it really became apparent that it was a critical need. I think the long view that you have on being a learner, becoming independent, helping somebody become independent is just a continuation. And as you mentioned, I personally had the same experience of executive function skills are ever evolving and they also are very context sensitive. That means you may think you got it and then you don't because something completely novel, difficult, unseen comes up. So let's get to the establish some concepts for the listeners in the context of schools and particularly the young developing mind. How do you see self-regulation and executive function relate to each other? And how do you then see promoting self-regulation in young children being a very specific requirement, so to speak? How do you conceptualize those ideas? Well, firstly, we cannot assume that when children come to school that they already have what they need to function appropriately with their self-regulation skills. You know, I think a We have to get to know them, meet them where they are, because some students are more prepared than others in terms of being able to regulate their emotions, be autonomous, be purposeful. And so I think the first step would be to sort of meet students where they are, find out what they're able to do, set up the environment so that it's conducive to them making the right choices. But I feel that when students do struggle with executive function and young children, I start our school starts in preschool. So, you know, I work with preschoolers to begin with. There is a wide range of ability with preschoolers. And naturally, a lot of it depends on their home life, obviously, but also whether or not they're an only child, whether or not they've been to any sort of daycare setting or any kind of structured setting prior to coming to school. So the first thing I do as a behavior specialist is try to figure out sort of where they are. And everything they do all day requires some sort of executive functioning, whether it's staying seated, walking in line, eating in a chair rather than getting up and walking around while you're eating. There's so many things that I think as educators, we expect them to already have in their repertoire of skills. And so many of our students do not have that repertoire of skills. So I feel that for them to be successful, maintaining attention is an executive functioning skill. When you think about it, I think that if we don't explicitly teach those skills, we can't expect them to be able to do more complex things like complete an activity or do work or things like that. And I love that little reference there that I think everything that is done on a daily basis requires executive function and is part of demonstrating executive function proficiency or lack thereof. But lack thereof is not indicative of a problem, but it could be just a developmental trajectory. It's interesting if you can maybe share with us some of your thoughts. Recently, I think I read, this was before we were in COVID watch, of course, but this little girl, I guess, pulled another girl's 
hair because she wanted the other person, the other child from not touching her food. So now what happened is the girl who pulled the other child's hair got in trouble, but it was a failure in self-regulation in terms of she did not want her food to be eaten, but her methods were wrong. And if we only focus on the child that got in trouble for pulling hair, we may be missing the point, right? So give us some examples. What are you seeing in the classrooms that is often considered dysregulated behaviors and gets that student in trouble, but we may be missing the point? Oh my goodness, that is such a good question. <laughs> and, and predominantly, that is what I work with with teachers because I think as educators, we do see it as aberrant behavior. Automatically, if a child doesn't follow a rule, especially if there's aggression involved, they've hit another student, they've pulled hair, we tend to be very reactionary. You know, you can't do that and they get in trouble. As a behavior specialist, I try to figure out, well, what is she trying to tell us? All behavior is communication. I think that is key. All behavior is communication. As adults, everything that we do is communication. The way we look at someone, the way we cross our arms, the way we lean in or not. And I try to relate that to adult teachers. Think about the way we communicate as adults. These kids are communicating. Perhaps they need an alternative way to communicate. So my go-to is rather than punish Let's figure out what they're trying to communicate and give them an alternative way to communicate. We can't assume that it's in any way malicious, especially if a little girl is upset with another student. That is just her way of saying, I'm bothered and I want you to stop doing what you're doing. So we need to give the student another way to communicate. We deal with a lot of what educators call insubordination and noncompliance. I would say the majority of our discipline referrals are for insubordination and noncompliance. <laughs> so tell us more about that. What does that look like in everyday school? <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the way teachers interpret insubordination as any form of disrespect or not following directions. You know, I'm the teacher. I give you a direction. You follow the direction. If only it were that simple. Following directions, maybe back in my day, at the risk of aging myself, when a teacher said, do something, you just did it. You know, yes. we just assumed that there wasn't a choice. <laughs> Nowadays, kids who maybe aren't autonomous and don't have good self-regulation, they'll say, no, I don't want to. <laughs> or, or they'll just not do their work. Or they'll stall in getting their work started. Or they'll get up and walk around the room. Or they will blatantly not follow directions. Or they'll bother other students. And I will tell teachers, okay, Punishing them is an option, but what does it teach them? We need to teach them to do something differently when they need a break or when they don't want to do their work, when they're insubordinate or disrespectful. First of all, if they haven't been explicitly taught to respect authority, then we need to explicitly teach that. We can't assume that they've automatically been taught that. Again, though, I feel like we're charged with telling them how we want them to behave and teaching them how we want them to behave. So noncompliance, insubordination, not following directions, not completing work. It's a big, big, big issue, but we can't physically make a child do anything. And so what I tell teachers, if punishment and chronic office referrals isn't working, we need to figure out what will work. We don't want to make them do something. We want to motivate them to do. We want to motivate them to behave and be compliant and be respectful. And so I think that's been the big disconnect with educators. They say, I just want them to do what they're supposed to do. I was trying to teach content, not teach behavior. So it's just been a really big disconnect in terms of having students be compliant without getting in trouble. And I wonder if you see this, that there is a general assumption on teachers' part, and I'm not faulting teachers for it at all because it's very fair and appropriate, that kids should have learned these before they showed up. Absolutely. And one very neat thing that you mentioned, which this idea of noncompliance 
and insubordination has this embedded suggestion that I don't respect you and I don't have to. And nothing is more hurtful to a teacher to see this kind of disregard for her very life's commitment. And when I talk to educators, I often say that, is there any other interpretation, just like you were saying, of that child's behavior? I love this statement that a misbehaving child is a misunderstood child. So I think if we take a look at why, what the intention is, getting behind the intention, what do you think are common reasons that educators struggle in seeing the intention when the behaviors are so overpowering and they completely camouflage the intention? My personal belief is that it's a, it's a very emotional response when students mm. don't do what we ask them to do. When we become teachers, I guess speaking for myself, it's our classroom. We're at the head of the room. We sort of command things and run the show and we want to be in control. <laughs> and I think control is a big part of it. And if we feel like our authority has been challenged in any way, even if that's not the intention behind the student, we perceive it as no, he didn't just say that to me. You know, I mean, you know, not in my classroom. And so I encourage teachers to give up a little bit of the control because the responsibility is ultimately on the student. We want them to be compliant, be respectful innately, not because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble if they don't. And we want them to be motivated to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because someone is telling them, if you don't do this, this will happen to you. And so I think it's just that there's a very strong emotional component, especially when our feelings are hurt when it's done in front of other students and we're embarrassed. We feel like we have to regroup and be in charge and show who's boss. And I've had teachers say, I can't reason with a student in front of other children. Then they'll think that I'm not in control or they'll think that I don't have... I'll be weak if I just exactly. like counsel them gently. I would maybe misinterpret it as not having the kahunis, I guess. Absolutely. And I've had teachers say, my administrator will think I can't control my classroom if I'm reasoning with my children. But again, I tell teachers, if what you're doing is working, keep doing it, but you're coming to me for help. So it's not working. So let's figure out a different way that we can approach your students. Perhaps the authoritarian classroom is not producing the results that you want. So let's try to figure out how we can get better results because at the end of the day, we want to want everything to work. And so what I tell teachers is instead of asking yourself, how can I deal with these behaviors? How can I, you know, address the needs of my students? Say, how can I support my kids? How can I find out what they need? To, you know, ask a student, how can I help you? Tell me what I can do to help you get started on your work rather than what's wrong with you? Why aren't you following directions? So it's just really a mindset shift more than anything. This reminds me that you remember when Goldman's research came about emotional EQ, you know, emotional intelligence. Absolutely, yes. I think until then, we really felt that one, you should be pulling yourself by the bootstraps. Two, if you're fussing or having problems, then it's a weakness. And if I don't like you, I have the right to not acknowledge your <laughs> challenges and help you. And third, this relationship of who is in charge and who is subservient, that can be extremely unproductive. So you're kind of appealing to educators and all of us, actually, who are in charge of children to tap into our own emotional intelligence. What part of education and curriculum that the educators receive or guidance that educators receive to know their level of emotional intelligence and develop that emotional intelligence competence? Unfortunately, not enough. I feel that there is so much emphasis placed on content, which is important, obviously, that I feel that a lot of our new teachers, especially new teachers, perhaps veteran teachers as well, aren't prepared for the students that 
are in our classrooms today, in today's classrooms, in terms of social emotional learning, self-regulation. And so part of my training is doing that, but it's very limited because most of the in-service and pre-service training teachers receive are content-based. I'm hoping to I work with our local university. I would love for there to be more pre-service training in addressing social emotional needs of students because I don't feel that you can educate a student who's not socially ready to learn or emotionally ready to learn. And I think there's a shift toward that. I think there's a shift towards schools having formal social emotional learning classes in schools, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. And I definitely think teachers need more training. I do the mindset training once a year. And I don't feel like social emotional skills can be taught in isolation. I feel like it's not a one and done sort of thing. I think it has to be ongoing. And when you talked about emotional intelligence, I think teachers also need to be aware of their own emotional intelligence, how they're feeling when they're having anxiety, how it's manifesting itself in their classrooms, how maybe their own anxieties are inhibiting the students from being able to deal with, with their anxieties. So it's definitely a vicious cycle and something that you know has to be ongoing. It's interesting. I recently read an article in New York Times talking about the billion-dollar industry that mindfulness has become. So now the new buzzword is mindfulness and talking about yoga or breathing and mindfulness. Complete, it has incredible merit. Don't get me wrong, but I feel we are also rushing through mindfulness. (laughs) Sometimes we are asking kids to take a break, breathe, calm down, and then go in. But you're right. I feel that it's not in synchrony. In psychology, we talk about this concept of emotional contagion. That means your own inner welfare is reflected in your presence and you create an aura or people can feel if you're not calm, you can say, I'm calm, I'm calm, but you're not calm. And that can have a great influence. So I feel, yes, it is asking a lot from teachers, but I do feel in the long run, it can really help everybody, including their family members, their own sanity and the very needy children. So let's get into talking about the kids. Share with us, what are the most difficult children you encounter? Or more importantly, what difficulties are they encountering that you are called upon to manage? So what does a behavioral interventionist do in the classroom context or school context? That's an excellent question. The primary issue that we're having now with our very young children is a lot of anger. They have a lot of anger and they have difficulty moving on from it. The smallest things can upset them and immobilize them to where they can't move on. They can't get past it. Someone took their pencil. Someone looked at them the wrong way. And we're seeing it in very, very young children. The majority of the referrals that I receive for support are pre-K through second grade, <laughs> interestingly. And as a behavior specialist, that doesn't surprise me because they're still learning how to regulate. They're Start learning how to be part of a structured setting and part of a structured group. But the majority of the issues that we're seeing are just the anger and the inability to channel that anger. Students that are having major acting out episodes where they're being aggressive to themselves or others, they're throwing chairs, they're hitting their teachers. And that is a child in distress, as far as I'm concerned. That is not a child who's being malicious or mean. They are just in distress. And so we want to emphasize the teacher's how can we support these students in their moments of distress? And I think teachers internalize it. It's being done to them. You know, oh, that student hit me. That student threw something at me. I didn't come to work to have a four-year-old hit me or curse me. But again, <laughs> it's a mindset shift. But that four-year-old wasn't born that way. No one's born that way. We have to meet them where they are and see them as a child in distress and teach them how to regulate. So to answer your question, just dealing with that anger and helping them get past that. A lot of what I see is when children curse or lash out, 
maybe it's the way they deal with issues at home. That's what they know. And I tell them the curses that vernacular in their home and them a different way to communicate at school. We act differently at home than we do at school. And some teachers will have that aha moment. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess if a four-year-old's cursing, I shouldn't be angry at them. I just need to tell them we can't do that in my classroom. And here's a different way you can communicate when you're upset. It's not being reactionary is the hardest part, I think. I had a wonderful guest last year. Her name is Carol Tavris, and she's written two remarkable books. The one that I talked to her about was Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. It's about <laughs> cognitive dissonance. But the second book can be a great resource for teachers. It's called Anger, The Misunderstood Emotion. And I love that book and the message there. One of the things that when I deal with a lot of behavioral dysregulation and particularly social because as you can see, anger can be extremely disruptive in forming meaningful relationships with people. And one thing that I talk about often is this idea of anger is a moral emotion. We become angry when things are unfair. So if we educators looked at what is the child perceiving to be unfair, and if you can actually show the fairness part of it, that can really help the child realign his emotion. Of course, this is a more cognitive approach. Once the behaviors are managed, you can become a manageable person to deal with that higher order thinking skills. But I find that helps a lot. So can you share with us some concrete strategies that will work in these situations in terms of what can a teacher do? Or And I bet a lot of people <laughs> find it hard to deal with others who are very angry. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, the first thing that anybody can do, especially classroom teachers, is create an environment that's conducive to the student feeling comfortable and safe. And I know that's not very specific, but I think that we have to start with our classroom environments. I feel like they need to be predictable. They need to be structured. Teachers need to be seen as an ally. And that's a very hard thing to teach, but I think it has to start there. And secondly, there needs to be a plan in place. If you have a student who is prone to outburst, has a very delicate trigger, and those kids can be annoying. I completely understand that. And, and they need a lot of attention. But if they need attention, then give them attention. You know, have something in place. If this student has a meltdown, have a plan, have a calm down corner, have sensory objects. We have created calm down corners in a lot of our classrooms with sensory objects where the student knows if I get upset, I don't have to have a meltdown. I can go directly to the calm down corner, do something sensory that helps me calm down. A, it's your self-regulation that they can make that choice, that they can go do it on their own. Of course, it has to be very structured. It's limited. There's a time limit. The student has to come back and do their work once they've calmed down. But I think that's part of creating that community of caring. Listen, I get mad too. It's okay if you get mad, but we're not going to throw a chair. When you get upset, go to the calm down corner. That's what it's there for. So I think preparation with your environment, um, having a plan so that people aren't being reactionary. They know exactly what they need to do when something happens. Everybody's not running around trying to figure out what can we do to calm this kid down. You know, there's already a plan in place. So I think that's a, a lot of it. I think if you have students that are chronically non-compliant, give them a choice. Choices are amazing. <laughs> Sometimes teachers have a hard time with choices. They say, well, why do I need to give the student a choice when all my other students are doing what they're supposed to be doing? And I say, because the other students don't need a choice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> give this kid a choice because what we want ultimately is for them to participate. If you give them a choice, and one of my favorite choices is, you know what, work for 10 minutes. I'll set a timer, baby. You can just do your work for 10 minutes. I know it's a lot. 
where for 10 minutes, when the timer goes off, you can take a break. That is powerful because students are never really given the freedom to do that. And our kids are stressed out. They need to know that when it's too much, I can take a break. And giving them choices, do the first five problems of your math paper. Don't worry about all 25, but that might be a little too much right now. So just do the first five, take a break and come back and do five more. Oh, write one paragraph. That's all I want you to do is write one paragraph. And teachers are so quick to say, we've got 20 minutes before we go to lunch. Get it done now. We don't have, I don't have time. You just need to do your work. And sometimes that takes more time than just sitting down and trying to figure out, let's just tweak this a little bit, give them a choice. And then it changes the whole perspective from the student's outlook. Oh, wow. She's willing to work with me. This is awesome. You know, I can actually take a break after 10 minutes. And it really works. And the results are immediate. They're immediate just in the change of attitude and the compliance and everything. So, I think these are such simple sounding, but such powerful methods. Because again, I think what I'm hearing you say or show is that the agency, it, the sense of control over the class still is within teacher's hand. And yet the student also feels he also has equal sense of agency in his future, in his own engagement in the classroom activity, because it doesn't feel like it's going to come down between the battle of wits. Yes, um, the second thing I really liked what you said, which can be actually applied in these difficult times in the classroom at home environment also, is have the pre-plan, like have your plan B in place. And I think most people don't realize how hard it is to be creative at problem solving when you're highly stressed. And if you have a kid who's screaming or throwing a tantrum, you cannot innovate and you cannot even engage that kid. But if you already have a kind of a pre-planned activity, I had a, a webinar the other day and I told the parents to think about having activity centers. So if you have a, let's say a pet, a canine activity can be very self-soothing. And if you don't have canines, then maybe you can have stuffed toys that you can play with. But something that the child needs to be told that he has choices. I love that. How feasible is this in given classrooms? And can we talk quickly about, I know it's a very important and a big topic, but how do you see the relationship between poverty, stress, and dysregulated kids? And are those children's needs different than children who come from middle class or upper middle class and the way they are dysregulated? Do you see any difference in that? Absolutely. And I've done a lot of studies or read a lot of studies and done some research on the effects of poverty. And all of the schools in my system are Title I schools, which mean the majority of the students do qualify for free and reduced lunch. Or actually, all of the students in our system qualify for free breakfast and lunch. And yes, I see a big difference in those students because they're not having their basic needs met in terms of healthcare, adequate food, clothing, shelter. Then they come to school sometimes stressed. And they may not be able to concentrate on math because math is not a priority right now. I'm hungry or I got in trouble before I got to school and maybe there's chaos in the home. That's not to say that students who experience poverty are all that way by any means. It's not to say that all students who experience poverty are traumatized and have bad home lives. That is absolutely not the case. But we do find that students who experience poverty, there are built-in stressors that they have to sometimes deal with before they've even entered the school building. They struggle with communicating if they don't feel like they've had their basic needs met. I'm a big admirer of Abraham Maslow who talks about the hierarchy of needs. I think that applies to all of us, not just children, but especially children who haven't developed those skills yet to self-regulate. They don't have the self-awareness when they're upset. They have to have their basic needs met. And 
once they have those basic needs met, they need to feel safe and secure. You know, that's next in that hierarchy. And we, teachers can go a long way to help students from poverty feel safe and secure in school. In some cases, school is the only place they feel safe and secure. And to me, that's all the more reason to, rather than punish these kids, chronically punish them for inappropriate behavior, we have to support them in their behavior and teach them alternate ways to behave and then reward them for making better choices. Otherwise, they grow into older children who still can't regulate and then they don't like school because it's always been a bad place or a bad experience for them. So yes, children in poverty struggle. Our students struggle. And I think that's the reason we are seeing so many more students with anger issues. In my opinion, when a child is angry, it's because they're stressed out. We tend to be agitated if we're worried about something or or stressed out. And students, a lot of times, don't have any control over their situation. So it's even more stressful when you don't know what to expect. So again, teachers need to provide that structure and that predictability and that constant care and compassion so those students will at least know that they will have a place they can be secure. You know, this reminds me of these two Stanford students. I think they came across some studies about stress, hunger, poverty, and its impact on capacity to think big. And I think they did an experiment where they tried to live on, maybe this is an exaggeration if I'm saying $32 per day or per week. I'm not really sure. But what happened is they became completely disabled disabled in a sense that they could not think about anything but food. They were constantly hungry. Their hunger needs were not met. They couldn't have intelligent conversations. They could not participate or socialize in a way where their mind was free or to connect and emote. They were preoccupied. They were always thinking. They were looking around, where can I find easiest food, cheapest food, and when can I get full? And not feeling full seemed to be a big barrier in to quote Maslow, to enlightenment. I think that was a very telling experiment, but I don't think an average person knows what it means to go hungry or without food. And the stressors that a child in Title I schools is experiencing probably is beyond imagination for many teachers if they have not had firsthand experience with poverty. So my heart goes out to these children and, and nothing but most compassionate selves we need to bring. But you're right, if somebody's behaving or acting out inappropriately, it can be putting offish. If I can just add to that, not only does trauma affect you emotionally, obviously, but there have been studies and you're probably familiar with them. Georgia State University is very involved in the studies of the brain and the physiology of the brain with students who yes. have experienced chronic trauma. It is fascinating. I would encourage any teacher to go to these trainings. It's so fascinating to me that when a child has experienced chronic trauma, it's not just that they're emotionally dysregulated, but physiologically it affects their cognitive ability. It can create cognitive delays. And so a lot of our children who struggle cognitively, if we know that they've had long-term chronic trauma, that may shed some light on why these students struggle, not just behaviorally, but also cognitively. It's fascinating research. And they fall behind and and academically, their capacity to learn with their peers or in tandem with their chronological age becomes a big problem, right? Absolutely. So let's think about, you have done a lot of work of building relationships with students who struggle and teaching them how to make choices and redirect behaviors. What does it look like at a, rather than at an individual student level, is there like a, we can take a little bit more aerial perspective on it? and think about a classroom level versus school level versus district level. And you have a lot of experience in that. 
So share with us, if you had all the resources and everything was perfect, how would you envision or craft this? Or have you seen it in many parts of the country where they have managed to provide such global intercepting support? Again, great question. That is my dream is to put it on a much broader level in terms of changing the mindset of educators. I do think it is being done in some systems where they're rethinking zero tolerance policy, which has shown not to be effective in some ways. It exacerbates the issue of discipline and behavior. I think we need to look at more restorative justice initiatives. Our school has been in some training for restorative justice, but it, it hasn't really caught on yet. Again, it's all a mindset. I think we need to let go of feeling that we have to be in control. The big part of it, the big step in that direction is going to be training. Pre-service training for new teachers, obviously, because I still think even today, new teachers don't really know what they're going to have to deal with when they get to their classes. And we have a real big teacher turnover in Georgia right now, especially with new teachers, three to five years. Teachers are leaving now within three to five years. And so I think we need to prepare them better for the emotional piece, the self-regulation piece, the behavior piece. I think that training is critical. In-service training for current teachers as well. I think there needs to be more emphasis on ongoing training. A lot of our training is for special ed teachers because the expectation there is there may be some lack of self-regulation. I think all teachers would benefit from more training in supporting children's self-regulation, especially very young children. I think that's where it needs to begin. Perhaps there even needs to be some legislation in Georgia or nationwide where we revisit our zero tolerance policies and we revisit the way we discipline children and we develop programs for children who may be predisposed to trauma because of poverty or whatever reason. I think being proactive is going to render many, many more long-term benefits than what we're currently doing. I love that. I think one point that really stands out in the way you have laid out your dream solution, and I, I just can't wait for us to do that for the future of our children's health, mental health, not just education. One thought came to my mind was, have you heard of Tulgawande? He is an American surgeon, he's a prolific writer, and he's written a lot of books. And he's an academician as well. But one interesting thing he wrote that I came across recently that he said that after many years after he graduated from medical school and became a surgeon, he reached out to his professor who taught him surgery during his residency and said, would you come and observe me and give me some feedback about my approach and my process? By then, he was already a surgeon for 12 years. And he was very confident, Atul Gawande, that his professor is going to say, oh my God, you're an amazing surgeon. You know? <laughs> but what happened is he came in with a little notepad and at the end he says, how did it go? He says, great, here. And he hands him this notepad with seven pages of notes. Wow. And first of all, like Atul Gawande was taken aback. He, he was a little offended. He's like, I'm a really good surgeon. But then he read the feedback and he said, wow, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Oh, wow, did I do that? So all the little steps that he had learned, best practices, things that you do to, that lead to best results in surgery or his own mannerisms, including bedside mannerisms, that simple feedback changed his entire outlook towards his own approach. And I feel this is something that we need to do for our teachers or our, my peers. I would love my peers coming in and with a little not seven pages, maybe copious notes, but somebody giving feedback. I think that once you graduate and once you move on to a professional career, I feel we disconnect that feedback loop where 
we lose a little perspective on how well we are doing and how where could be the gaps that we can bridge. I think that may be a wonderful way to ignite self-improvement in our teachers. <laughs> yes, I absolutely agree. And back to the original question, there are three behavior specialists in our system and we have 8,000 students. So I think there wow. need, we do have counselors in every school and we do have some mental health services in every school, but our jobs work on explicitly mentoring those teachers and, and building capacity. We want to build capacity in the teacher's ability to all be behavior specialists ultimately. And yes, I do think the mentoring and the feedback is critical. Sometimes I'll go in and observe a teacher. And of course, there's always wonderful things that I see. And it's always more good than bad for sure. But I may say, you know, when you reprimand, smile when you do it or change your intonation or walk around the room or touch a student on the shoulder. And it's just little things that aren't a program or a curriculum or anything that they need to buy or do that's an extra. And so it's building that capacity, mentoring, providing support. A lot of times when we're in our classrooms, we are all alone and we're all so busy. We don't have time to do that. And I think we need that needs to be a priority as well. But we can support each other, not be embarrassed if we can't control our classroom or manage behavior and just really get the mentoring and the support that we need. I think that's a big piece of it as well. Fantastic. So as we come to the end, tell us a little bit in your professional capacity, what kind of, I don't want to say report writing, but how do you create a plan? What's the distinction between a 504 versus an IEP, individualized plan that that you create? And give us a, maybe a little bit window into a student for whom you might have written something and how would that look? That's a great question. I'll distinguish first between IEPs and 504s because an IEP is written for a student with a special education plan. They've been identified as having special needs and they have an IEP team, which is a wonderful advantage where Anyone who serves the student comes in and as a team, we talk about what can we do to support the student behaviorally. A child with a 504, it is not a special ed service, obviously. That is a regular ed um, service. Again, we meet as a team and we talk about, you know, does this child have a disability um, that doesn't necessarily qualify them for special education, but they do need support. For example, ADHD or diabetes or anything that may warrant them getting support. Again, we meet as a team and we talk about what accommodations can we give them? What can we do to support them? Because we know they struggle. So let's go ahead and support them. For all other students, we have response to intervention. And I'm a firm believer in RTI where we start to build that village from a very young age. And I know that's very much a cliche that it takes a village, but it really does take a village. To, you know, so many things that we do are isolated from one another. You know, the teacher goes to the administrator. And no one talks to me or the counselor, or maybe the counselor has dealt with the student, but then no one ever really comes together and says, this is what we're saying. Let's work together to ameliorate it. So if you have a student who's chronically acting out or having meltdowns, we bring the parent in. Obviously, they're a very important part of the team. And we get to the bottom of it. Is there anything that could be causing it? Is there a trigger? So in terms of reports, I'll go in and assist the teacher in doing a functional behavior analysis. We collect data for 10 days and then we analyze the data to see, does this always happen right before lunch? Does this always happen when they get off the bus? Is there a particular student or a particular teacher that may be that trigger? Because in order to get to the bottom of it, we really need to know what the cause is. So we literally do a functional behavior assessment and it's not as difficult as it may sound. It's very doable. And then we analyze the data and create a plan just for that student. That's fantastic. And typically, what are the factors that determine the response and success to this plan that is developed? Well, after the plan is developed and it's developed 
specifically for that individual student. We implement uh, research-based interventions. I'll go in and help the teacher implement them if she doesn't really understand how it works. And then we'll collect data on the outcomes. Did it work? We'll try it for several weeks and see if it worked. And if it didn't, we'll tweak it and try something else. Because ultimately, we want the child to learn how to self-regulate on their own. So this has been fantastic. As we come to an end, do you have any closing thoughts, Cheryl? I think we need to maintain hope and we need to create a community of compassion as best we can. (laughs) We're all human and teaching is so hard. It's one of the hardest jobs anyone could ever do. But we need to remember why we went into education to help children. And at the end of the day, that is more than just teaching them content. We have to also be able to help them develop trust, build relationships, and develop compassion themselves. I think if we can be compassionate toward children, then we can raise compassionate adults. So don't give up hope. I love that. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your wonderful knowledge and particularly going with us into the weeds of the difficult children and their journey in receiving the right to help that they deserve and need. And I'm so excited to know how carefully this process works out and that every child has an opportunity to bring out their best. So thank you for what you do and thank you for sharing your wisdom today. You're so welcome. And thank you for what you do as well, Sucheta. I really enjoyed being with you. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. If you know of someone who might benefit from listening to today's show, a teacher, a principal, coach, or parent, we would be most grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Dr. Cheryl Rice, and all of us at EXQ, thanks for listening. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.